0: You know, one irony we look at in this book is that finding silence in a group, building a culture that honors quiet, often requires more talking. And what we mean by that is it requires having a conversation about what your needs are, what your colleagues' and friends' needs are, about what kind of noise distracts you. So having an intentional conversation about the norms. About the culture is what's so important. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living.
1: Hey folks, it is RJ Singh here at Ultra Habits and you are with us for another week's episode. And this week we have... Bit of a different format. We have two people being interviewed at the same time. So we have co authors Justin Zorn and Lee Mars unpacking their new book, which is really, really interesting. It's called Golden The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. Now, Justin and Lee are the founders of a strategy consultancy, and this is their examination of the benefits of silence now drawing on the science of quietude zorn and mars they encourage us to understand and manage the noise so that we can more consciously tune in to nature to one another into the essence of life itself and that's what we're talking about on the show in a world that has increasingly become Louder, not only from a social media and tech perspective, that's what we usually hear about, but actually a louder world, more people, more noise, constant noise. How is that affecting us? How does that affect our creativity? How does that affect our ability to truly perform? How does that affect our ability to simply be? And what can we do What are some of the solutions that we can implement that help us get back to the natural, that is the silence. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Anyways, folks, I'm gonna leave you in the capable hands of Justin and Lee. Hope you enjoy this episode. As always, rate this podcast, tell us what you think. So, Lee, Justin, welcome to the Ultra Habits Podcast. It's about 8 a.m. down here in cold Victoria, Australia, but we are super grateful to have you both on the show.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Glad
0: to be here, OJ. Thank you.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, your subject matter expertise in terms of just creating space, silence, um, your book, Golden, is really of interest to myself and any. Executive, I actually was having lunch with our chairman of the board the other day. And, you know, I was talking a million miles an hour, and he told me to go in a room and just look at a blank wall. And it was pretty profound advice. He's a bit of a sage and philosopher. And I think that a lot of us in executive land just get compounded fatigue and we get busy doing instead of being. And there was something that you guys had written in one of your articles. It was, um, I'll, I'll read it. It says, Silence isn't just the absence of noise, it's a presence that brings us energy, clarity, and deeper connection. Now, I'll hand it over to Lee. Lee, can you unpack what that actually means?
2: Well, on one level, silence really is about the absence of noise, and we are interested in that space of silence, uh, looking at it from the auditory perspective and also informational, uh, kind of the relief and the release of that pressure out there in the world. But what we found in our interviews, and we spoke with so many people asking the question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? We spoke with neuroscientists and executives and politicians and artists and activists, a man incarcerated on death row, a heavy metal frontman, a Grammy winning opera singer, you know, so many different people. And what they turned us towards is really silence as a presence that brings up healing and that perspective Perhaps that place of discernment that we've been lacking when we're in that grind, go go, achieve achieve kind of place. So in our journey, we look at silence as the absence of noise. We even look at whether silence even exists at all. If there is there such a thing as silence in that literal sense, but we take a turn into the science of silence and how it benefits our bodies, the toll of noise and how it impacts our bodies and our minds and our relationships and our to ourselves, each other in the world. And then we open out to silence's presence, which is a very vast kind of area of exploration and a place where we don't feel any expertise per se at all. We're humble students in the in the discovery of silence in that way.
0: Yeah, I think that humility is so important to who we are because RJ, like you said, you know, this this executive chair of the board who said, go stare at a blank wall, that's us often. That's been us in our professional careers and our leadership careers. And it's something that we're still learning how to tune into the benefit of silence. But we wrote this book because it's served us in so many ways and the people we've spoken with. And we connect to silence as this presence, as you asked about As a space where nothing's making claims on our consciousness, this space where we can give up the responsibility that's so pervasive in life right now to have to think of what to say. So when you went and stared at that whiteboard in silence, it's like getting to take a temporary break from that daunting responsibility of having to think of what to say. And in that space, the nervous system can settle, it can reset, and it becomes easier to access intuition. It becomes easier to discern what's true.
1: Yeah, I think that in every point or at any given point in our lives, we need to be willing to sit with ourselves in a room quietly. And that will generally tell us where we're really, truly at, right? Like our you know, that quote, I think by Pascal blaze or whatever man's woes or inability to sit with himself in a quiet room. I paraphrase, but I, I truly understand that. So in terms of the silence that we're talking about, are we talking about inner silence and inner stillness, or are we talking about creating guardrails in our environment that create a still and quiet environment or both?
2: Yeah, we are interested in silence in many forms of silence and so looking at that this the external silence because certainly the world is profoundly louder than it's ever been. The decibel levels and the th- number of things grabbing for our attention is unprecedented. So the world is louder and that silence where we can actually hear you know the natural sounds, the na- sounds of nature, which we wouldn't call noise, right? These noises, unwanted distractions. So birdsong and different things. Those are that. That's part of the silence. Part of what brings a silence to our consciousness. But we are also very interested in the silence that is an internal experience, one that we spoke with neuroscientists and psychologists about, and it's one that we really know very little about what's actually happening in the, in the brain and in the mind, but we explore that. Um, so we're interested in all those types of silences, external, internal. Yeah.
1: You bring up an interesting point. Um, and maybe Justin, I'll I'll throw it to you. Our natural ways of operating would have for a millennia and plus been based and geared towards natural noise. And we, haven't evolved probably at the pace of the external noise and external stimuli. Do we know what the cost of noise and external noise coming at us has been? Like, what's the negative outcome of all this stuff that's coming at us, which we're probably haven't evolved to properly cope with? I'm can i I'm making an assumption there. Justin, what do you think about that?
0: Well, it's a really important question. And one thing that we found is that people have always throughout history been complaining about how loud it is. 25 (laughs) years ago, we found some research that in South Asia and big cities, people were complaining about the sounds of horse-drawn carriages and bells and gongs and people screaming, eat, yay, and drink. And still, the world right now is demonstrably louder than it's ever been at any time in history. It is a mass proliferation of mental stimulation. You know, it's not just more cars and helicopters and buzzing drones and pinging gadgets and, you know, speakers and TVs and waiting rooms. It's also the noise of absolute exponential increases of information. So uh, a good way to measure whether it's really noisier now than before is emergency vehicle sirens. They have to be loud enough to cut through all the surrounding soundscape. So the decibels of their sirens, it's a really good proxy for figuring out how loud it is in our surroundings. And some estimates show that those sirens on emergency vehicles are six times louder than they were a century ago. Some estimates show that noise pollution doubles or triples every 30 years. So what this noise does to us essentially is Drive the fight or flight response. There's a whole lot of research showing about how excessive auditory stimulus, especially the unwanted distraction, because that's how we talk about noise as distinct from just sound and stimulus generally. The unwanted distraction drives activity in the amygdala, which is the basis of stress hormones like cortisol. So back in the 1850s, Florence Nightingale, this you know legendary British nurse, and public health innovator, she said that unnecessary noise is the most cruel absence of care that could be inflicted on a person either sick or well. And that's what all the research today is showing. You know, it's a driver not just of hearing loss, but the noise is a driver of cardiovascular disease, stroke, depression, sleep loss, and then a range of different challenges that lies downstream of those. And what we've found in our research is that there's an interplay between all this auditory noise and all the informational noise on our screens today, and then the internal noise in our own heads. When it's louder in our ears and louder on our screen, it becomes louder in our own consciousness. So this is what we really want to address with this book, this notion that the, the noise of the modern world is keeping us from achieving the health we want, but also from our clear perception and intention and our ability to tune into the solutions that we need to the problems that we face.
1: No. Okay. Yeah. So let's unpack that. There's two issues here. One is the existential process of noise, which is going to increase. Is there anything that you or your research is suggesting that we should do about the existential problem? And then I guess the second problem is then how do we, as human beings, evolve to still be able to create space with this increasing noise? So are you suggesting that as a society, we need to find ways to not continue at a rate of knots to get louder?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah.
1: How do we do that? How does society do that with a booming, you know, population? And like, what do we, what do we do? That's a massive problem that we're going to try to solve. Right.
2: Yeah. And we do take a both and approach, like what was, is within our sphere of control personally, right? What, what can we actually do in our lives? Where do we have some influence? Because there is an, an element um, about what we can do in our own lives. And yet it is not just like that. We're not trying hard enough or failing personally. There is a whole system, economic, cultural systems that are, that are making um, this loudness, the, the thing that we're being valued and not valuing silence. And Justin can take us into those details.
0: Well, RJ, we could talk a little bit about personal practices and then we could go into some of the society-wide practices. How does that work? Lee, do you want to kick us off with a little overview of what we can do as individuals and maybe workplaces, communities?
2: Absolutely. So we do have, we actually have... um, uh, a teacher come in, Jarvis J. Masters. He's a man on death row. He's incarcerated. I mentioned him, but by name, his name is Jarvis J. Masters. He's on death row for now 30 years for a crime. The preponderance of evidence shows he didn't commit. He is in his cell 23 hours out of a day and in an environment where it's just, you know, cacophonous sound loud hard surfaces you know the yelling and hollering of other inmates the you know lo-fi radios and party beats and games and all kinds of things going on anytime plus the the emotional anxiety of of these appeals and cases and trials and all the the dynamics going on with others that's at play and then what that does to his and other people's internal noise levels right But he talks, he walks us through what it's like to actually get a handle on things within one sphere of control. For him, that's about connecting to compassion, connecting to the for the sake of, you know, why is it to. Why is it important to stay calm and centered in such an environment? So he is deeply connected to his Buddhist practice. He's also in study. He's writing. He's exercising. He's doing all these things to keep his own center because as he puts it, if he loses it, he can be in a dungeon somewhere in no time or back in solitary confinement. It's a life or death experience. So his ability to find his center of gravity, his sphere of control is important and where he can have influence around, you know, he he does have actual influence in our lives. He's become a friend. He actually emits that quiet that that, which we're speaking of as well as to other inmates and even some guards there, um, all the people in his life, frankly. So we look at how in one's life you can center, find your Find the things in your life where you can bring quiet. Quiet is what we think quiet is. It doesn't have to be meditation. It doesn't have to be bells and cushions. It doesn't have to look a certain way. What we orient the reader towards is really noticing the the signals that one is feeling too much noise, one is experiencing too much noise. How does that live in the mind and the emotional states? How do we notice that in the body? Are we clenching our jaws? Are we tightening our chest or our shoulders or, you know, up at our ears? You know, what are the signals that we've come to know mean too much noise? And what are the signals that tell us we're actually actually genuinely experiencing quiet, whatever our form of quiet may be, and that can be flow states, that can be actually being in auditory quiet, that could be in nature, that could be doing really auditorily quite loud things, but internally feeling quite quiet.
0: So in the book, we translate what Lee was describing into a range of very practical practices for what's within your sphere of control or your sphere of influence in your life. You know, it could be as simple as tuning into the silence in a little micro moment throughout your day, not necessarily needing to have a meditation practice, a mindfulness practice, or some kind of sophisticated framework, but just tuning into the silence. Researchers at Duke Medical School have found that there's evidence that trying to listen in silence activates the auditory cortex and actually helps regenerate brain cells. So we look at ways to do this all throughout the day. We look at ways, for example, to work with our lives and priorities. Like for example, a practice we call Take Your To-Do List for a Hike. It was inspired by a um, acoustic ecologist named Gordon Hampton who would print off his to-do list when it gets too long and take it to a really remote place and spend a couple hours there. And then once he's really tuned into the silence of that remote place, he'll realize he can cross off a whole bunch of things that he thought were important, but from that vantage point, they weren't really that important after all. So in the book, we look at, you know, upwards of 30 different ideas like this. You mentioned this balance between the personal and the societal. A lot of the ideas we look at are for families, for communities, for workplaces, But we also look at a range of different options that, as societies, in places like the U.S. or Australia or other places, governments have for thinking about the management of the attention economy, for example. We also look at uh, the importance of investing in quiet public sanctuaries, for example. And then we look to get to really the essence of the question you were asking before about How, as a society, are we, you know, with a growing population and growing technology and all of this, how are we going to find more quiet? We really work, RJ, in this book to to focus on the big systemic issues. And for us, the big systemic issue is really this. We often mistake the feeling of stress for aliveness. Hmm. And that reflected in the way we measure the economy, for example. The way we measure GDP is as much sound and stimulus as we are creating. You know, just like you don't measure the value of a pristine forest in GDP, you know, unless you chop it down sell the lumber. We don't measure the value of pristine human attention that's in the non-monetary economy, which isn't really a particularly you know radical or you know anti-capitalist thing to say. It's simply just a statement about the way our measurements are misaligned with what's really bringing us value as human beings. Because I know for me, I know you've got kids as well. You know, when I have a quiet moment of just playing around with my kids or a quiet moment in nature or a quiet moment enjoying great art, that's when I'm able to tune into the silence and that's when I'm able to tune into a a higher level of wholeness and well being. So we look at some practical ideas about how we could tweak our economic measurements, for example, to better account for that.
1: Man, I'm with you. <laughs> that 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 comment was huge. We mistake stress for productivity. You know, for a long time, I didn't realize I was in one continual panic attack. Like people thought I was hyper-productive and I thought I was hyper-productive, but when I actually through my journey started to sit and put a name on what was actually going through my body it was complete nervous system overload i'm a trail runner uh that's why i live in the bush i don't run ultra marathons right now but i I do consistently spend time in the bush and i tell people sometimes i go out there and as soon as i put my running shoes on and get out there and my feet touch the dirt i almost want to cry and what it is, is there's this moment of like release and relief. And there's a wholeness out there that is spiritual in nature without getting woo-woo. And I kind of know that's where I'm meant to be. And, and, and what I've done over time is I do work in a way where I go and plug into the matrix I do what I need to do and then I pull myself out and I have this kind of interplay. And even when I drive home, I'm driving up a a mountain range. It's this kind of, I'm coming into my sanctuary. There's a switching off that occurs. And I think that for a lot of us, we get so busy doing that. The real competitive advantage is being able to sit and reflect and really understand What's important? I've had criticism because people think that I need to sometimes be doing more. Where I might go for a twenty-minute run during the day. Well, you're smoking cigarettes. I'm going to go for a twenty-minute run. You know what I mean? Like, but I guess I want to get into strategy. You talk about how this whole piece on silence can actually impact firm strategy for the executives out there. Let's unpack that. Like, how can what your and what we're talking about actually enhance an organization.
2: Love that you asked that. And there's so much good stuff you just said in there. I just have to want to acknowledge. I'm so glad you know your way to quiet. And thank you for sharing that piece about you in the trail. And this is a book that's not for monastics running off to a mountain to spend. You know, they're, they're, this is for people to use your metaphor, plugging in and plugging out of the matrix. You could say <laughs> we've never said that, but now here it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, because we're really interested in that nexus, like how do we live these full lives, do the work that we're meant to do in the world, and also stay connected while also staying connected to those quiet moments and all the moments that Justin was just describing. So that's f- the full life we're wanting. So a lot of the clients that we work with are up to big important things. They're addressing climate change or they're trying to remove toxic chemicals from our products and, environments. and these issues, there's a certain way in which you can come at it. With, I'm working with a lot of scientists and engineers, so they tend to reach for the data and, and take a lot of it, like, you know, do another PowerPoint, another PowerPoint, and hours and hours of data. And, you know, the body can only take so much. And at a certain point, that also turns into noise, no matter how great that data is. We can't process it. So we encourage our, the people we work with to, to interrupt that flow of information in that typical way to step out of that stream and to, to take a moment to reflect differently, to think differently so that different ideas can emerge so that we're not coming at things in the same, same way. Um, so in some cases that means for us going out to the redwoods, being with the trees that absorb with their very bark, the sound, the, the auditory sound, and with all the, needles on the on the floor to connect with as Gordon Hempton, who is just who Justin was just speaking about, who takes his to-do list for a hike. He says, you know, you cannot make these decisions about the well-being of the earth in a cement box with no windows and fluorescent lighting, you have to actually connect with the thing you're trying to protect or the work you're trying to do. And we would argue also with some silence, we can't come at it with that same kind of problem solving and more and more noise and data. So that's part of what we what we do with our clients. And we've seen amazing results in terms of just entire paradigm shifts around how to address in the US, 80,000 largely unregulated chemicals by looking at them it's as six chemical classes, six families, and how much more likely that is that you, me, and just a non-chemist could actually make a good decision about purchasing as a, you know, as a large purchaser and things like that. It's a game-changing way of framing things. We would never have gotten to that if not for the silence.
0: I wanna to speak to RJ, just building on what Lee said, you know, your, the essence of your question about really the the connection between silence and strategy thinking about executives and thinking about all this. And, you know, it reminds me often of the simple question, like why do the best ideas often come to us in the shower? But Not just when there's no phone around, not just when we're not on the computer, but when we absolutely can't be on the phone. <laughs> <You> know,
2: <we laughs> right. Can't
0: be on the computer. Because one thing we find as we study these feedback loops of noise in the world, the auditory noise, the informational noise, the internal noise, Sometimes it needs to be in the place where we're totally unplugged. There's no possibility of being able to pick up that call, where we could get into a place where it's, it's possible to tune into the silence and tune into a deeper kind of intuition. So we look in the book, you know, thinking about leadership and strategy. In 1787, at the Constitutional Convention in the U.S. in Philadelphia, the delegates to the convention had a giant dirt mound built outside of the hall where they were doing the work because they wanted pristine concentration and no noise. And I worked for many years in the Congress in the US. I was a legislative director for some um, democratic members of Congress. And when I was there, Archie, it was the opposite of that. These days, it's like, gotta have the TV on full blast all the time. Open office, you know, constant meetings, constant texting. Why didn't you answer that email I sent you 10 minutes ago? You know, it's it's a, such a radically different environment, but that radically different environment reflects a radically different value set. And that value set gets to the question: do we appreciate, do we respect pristine human attention?
1: What's the connection between a noise? and the
2: quality of decision-making. Oh, I love that question.
1: Because I'll I'll tell you why.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: I, I feel when the world is very loud, you know, I'm being vied for multiple forms of attention. I have an internal decision fatigue and I start just making the autopilot decisions. But I'm curious to understand like, whilst you may not have done that research directly, what would some assumptions that we could make on just this heightened state of noise coming at us and the decisions that we're then making as a result?
2: I think we would look to attentional uh, studies and cognition studies there. And then I think what follows downstream is decision-making. So I appreciate your point. So we can look at the research of set Csikszentmihalyi on attention. And he estimates that we have something like uh, 120 bits of, of information of that's what, that's how attention is measured in is in bits which is kind of a funny term but that's how we measure it so we have about 120 bits of of, of information we can take in any second right but we're getting 11 million bits at us through our through our sensory channels So he's describing how if we're listening to somebody, you know, and in a conversation, that's about 60 bits. Plus, we're thinking about maybe, you know, how we want to respond and getting context for all the words they're saying. And then that kind of quickly takes that conversation up to the upper limits of our ability to listen to one or two people and have a conversation. So uh, he jokes that with billions of people on the planet, we can only listen to one or two at a time, <laughs> you know? So we are definitely taxed. And I think that is true that we're getting with our attention. Now we have all these things grabbing for our attention. There's a uh, top down attention, you know, decision-making or top-down things grabbing for our attention and bottom-up. Those are things grabbing from the outside world for our attention. Not necessarily what we're trying to put our attention on, but someone calling out our name or our phone pinging and saying, we have a notification. That level of bottom-up Um, material is coming through the roof at us, you know, just flooding us like from a fire hose. So we are completely taxed. And then I do think downstream, our decisions, our ability to be attentive and our ability to make decisions from that place gets fatigued, like you were saying. And then it's, yes, it's chocolate cake. Yes. It's whatever. It's that second glass of wine. It's all the things, (laughs) it's all the things. So I do think there's a connection through attention. What are,
1: Some of the things that a firm could do in terms of habituating and recognizing, A, that this is important for its people to start to develop its realm of silence. Like, what can a firm do to start to habituate some of this practice in their companies?
0: You know, one irony we look at in this book is that finding silence in a group, building a culture that honors quiet, Often requires more talking. And what we mean by that is it requires having a conversation about what your needs are, what your colleagues and friends' needs are, about what kind of noise distracts you. So, having an intentional conversation about the norms, about the culture is what's so important. You know, I mentioned that difference between what it was like when they were writing the US Constitution and today, you know, and how that was a difference in values. One thing we contend in the book is you know, organizations across the board today are governed by norms of noisiness, like I was describing in Congress today, but it's possible to shift those norms. So one thing you can think about doing is starting a conversation about what's not working for you, kind of taking inventory for yourself. Are you being allowed time for deep work, for example, to use Cal Newport's example? Uh, to use his his framing. We looked to a, an old colleague of Lee's named Michael Barton, who worked at a company called CitySearch, which is uh, now a division of Ticketmaster in the US. And uh, this was back in the 90s in an open plan office. Programmers and developers were finding it extremely difficult to be able to find the quiet space that they needed to do their work. So what they decided to do was have a conversation about it Uh, Michael really championed these junior employees' need for quiet and brought their plight to upper management. And they decided to try an experiment. They gave each team member a red sash, which was a three-foot-long, three-inch-wide strip of bright red fabric that they could wear in this open office as a do-not-disturb sign. And then there'd be no stigma around, you know, not answering someone's request not chit-chatting with someone on the open office floor. Uh, it was kind of essentially like an out of the office so someone could do deeper work. Now, Michael was really clear that this red sash wasn't like the thing that was the <laughs> panacea that solved all the problems, but it started a bunch of other experiments, including creating a kind of tech cave for coding work. It started the, a kind of experimental mindset Where people could come together and say, all right, this is too noisy. This is too distracting. We're not honoring, you know, not giving people the dignity and respect that they need to do their work. So what can we try to experiment? So maybe that's, you know, no meeting Fridays. Or maybe that's taking a day a week where you don't have to respond to emails. Or it could be any of a thousand plus things. But entering into that safe space for conversation, entering into that experimental mode. what we find is so important for organizations and we also in our work find it's really important for friends and family too and a household
2: as well. Another piece to this is actually also doing the work personally, like not assuming your needs <laughs> for quiet and noise. I mean, you know, sometimes like you can feel like maybe that auto dictate thing isn't noise to you, right? It's just sound. It's just necessary sound, but to the person in the desk right over there, or to your family member who you're sharing the table with, they may not feel differently. So to do your own inventory, where do I create noise that may disturb others and maybe even inquire? So some of that more, that conversing that Justin was saying, but there is a norm, no matter what, when you workplace, there is a norm. What is it? Let's like, look at what that default is and be more intentional about what you want. And then adding that layer of play and experimentation is, is so good across an organization as we know, but really even thinking about these, like it could be something fun, like a, you know, red sash activity or whatever, but just to play with it, to prototype it, to iterate and make it better as you go. Um, those are all the things that we're seeing. And and it, it's like, it's definitely a big issue. And thankfully, uh, Cal Newport's work has brought it into the foreground that people are not feeling a sense of getting deep work done, whatever their work is. They're constantly interrupted. So what, it, you know, what is the cost of that? The true cost. So he, he points us towards the convenience addiction that we think if it has any benefit that we say, send a group email, if there's any benefit, we do it because we're not clear on what the cost is of constantly interrupting other people.
1: How do you feel that the remote workplace situation, is it enhanced the agenda that you're, you guys are advocating? In, in many ways, it would, right? Because it means that each individual then has some autonomy and control over their external environment to help shape that, right?
0: Like so many things in COVID times, you know, it depends on the perspective. You know, it could be a double-edged sword. You know, on one hand, when the first quarantine started, there was so much more silence and space in our world, even to the point that whale song returned, bird song certainly returned. People could notice bird song much more, but there's empirical evidence of that. And yes, more in our working environments became part of that sphere of control. You know, there was more that we could control in many ways when we didn't have the commute and the need to go into the office. But at the same time, our home environments, you know, doubled as schoolhouses, tripled as offices. So that also created this environment where it could be noisier. And also, RJ, through the pandemic, there was, in keeping with this frame of auditory noise, informational noise, internal noise, so much of this noise of uncertainty. And that doesn't just mean the noise of, well, what's gonna happen with the pandemic? How bad is it gonna be? What are my risks? There was also, we noticed many people The noise of uncertainty in the working world around what's expected of me. Am I pulling my weight right now because I'm not in the office? All that professional uncertainty was also a form of of noise in the consciousness. So it certainly wasn't an easy kind of win for the work. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely
2: not.
0: There was a silver lining there that was so clear.
2: It did shake everything up and I think make things that were working and not working more apparent. I feel like there is a level of of, of, like we can observe things in a different way. Having had our workplaces shaken up in that way, we're open um, and interested in some new solutions.
1: Yeah, look, I think your work is very interesting and, and noble. And I think for me, it's important. I think anything that I hold or personal narrative a very high in terms of what I feel is important to a human and the individual. Like, I think the way that our personal narrative is shaped and the way that we talk to ourselves is extremely important. And the connection between external noise and stimuli in our narrative is huge. The world is loud and we're consuming the wrong information and things. It shapes our narrative, and that then has a negative impact upon ourselves, our mental health, our physical, emotional, spiritual health, and ultimately our environment. So, I think that the work that you guys are doing is interesting. I think it's vital. I think that it will it it will help human beings be stronger, faster, smarter, but also collective societies and organizations and and as we kind of start to to land the plane here, I wanted to ask you guys in terms of the 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 book um, uh, Golden. Can you guys talk a little bit more about just high-level points for the person that's going to read it? People are going to come on the show. They're going to get interested. They're going to read it. What could they expect to take out of the book?
0: Thank you for the question, James. You know, the most gratifying response that we're hearing is that the book is helping people appreciate silence in their lives and that it's giving them a feeling of almost a kind of abundance Because the silence, as noisy as the world seems, the silence is always available. You know, it's in the breath. It's in the five cozy minutes before the alarm clock rings. You know, it's in stepping outside and just feeling the rays of the sun. Like it's this abundance that's always available in a time when, you know, we can feel so much scarcity. So the arc of the book is a study of this. We look at, we do a deep dive into the meaning of noise, the meaning of silence, And then we take head on the idea that silence is some kind of like apathy or withdrawal or not doing your job, or even silence is violence, silence is complicity or complacency. You know, we take that head on and we look at the idea that silence is necessary for discernment so that we could be effective in our action in the world for what's right. Then we look at the science, the medicine, the science of silence, the medical perspectives, the neuroscience perspectives. What is the meaning of silence in medicine? What is the meaning of silence in neuroscience, in the, in the mind? And then we look at wisdom traditions, why the great philosophies and spiritual traditions of the world all emphasize silence, not just as a pathway to find the truth, but silence as the essence of truth itself. And we look all over the world to all different teachers on this. And then in the second half of the book, we explore how to find silence, the field guide.
2: And we weave in the stories of all kinds of fascinating characters, a few of whom you've heard a little bit about. And we do this not to be prescriptive because it's not about exactly their way or exactly one way. In fact, what we're interested in is presenting a myriad, infinite numbers of ways and a pathway for people to find their own way because that's the one that they'll use. And what that's what matters. Quiet is what we think it is. Quiet is what we'll access and do. And quiet is what we deserve. It's our birthright. And we, we do innately know how to be and what to do, just like you stepping on the soil ready for your trail. That's a knowing you belong there. And we believe that that is true for everybody. And we believe it's not true for us just individually, but as families and as friend groups and as workplaces and as a society. And that, that taking the time to connect to that silence will help us in honoring and celebrating this life that we have together.
1: Beautiful. So where can we find more information about you guys in the book?
2: you can buy the book and anywhere books are sold and Harper Collins is our publisher in the U S and penguin in the UK. Um, so Amazon and anything else, any of those independent bookstores as well. And um, you can also look us up at astreastrategies.com. That's A S T R E A strategies.com. Cause we are interested in those strategies you were pointing us towards. Yeah.
1: Oh, uh, look guys, I really want to take the time to appreciate you both. I think it's noble work. It's always Uh, Great to talk to people that are bringing unique flavors into industry and and trying to move humanity forward, but at the same time impacting organizations that you're working for. I find that's really cool. So, again, thank you for joining me and we'll be in touch.
0: Thanks, RJ. (laughs) Thank you, RJ. Really good to be with you. Thanks, guys.